This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Alex Hammond, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Cheryl. So Alex was born in South Africa and emigrated to Australia as a child. He graduated with an arts law degree from the University of Melbourne. He has presented workshops and spoken about writing around Australia, including the Emerging Writers' Festival, New South Wales Writers' Centre and Casey Winter Arts Festival. Uh, His debut, Blood Witness, was shortlisted for the 2014 Ned Kelly Award for Best Crime Novel. Its sequel, The Unbroken Line, was described as a taut and intelligent thriller. Both have been optioned as a TV series. This new book, The Paris Collaborator, is his third novel and a vivid and captivating historical German-occupied Paris. Now, as you know, a lot of fiction um, set uh, during that time and it is well-loved and well-read. But this is slightly different, isn't it? That's the goal, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've tried to tell a mystery story um, and find a way to bring a sort of real kind of moral, challenging moral questions around, you know, where along the spectrum do a range of characters fall in terms of their participation in uh, the occupation of, of, of Paris and, yeah, and sort of probe around and sort of that kind of ethical conundrums. Yeah. I'm not, you know, I loathe to get pol- political. Actually, I don't. That's a lie. I love it. But p- other people loathe it. But I am going to get political on this because Good. when I was growing up, I was, you know, when I in high school or whenever I learned um, first about the Holocaust and, and what happened to the Jewish people at the hands of Germany, I always thought, where was the rest of the world? What were we doing? What were people doing when this was going on? Then fast track to the Trump era. What were we doing when children would be held at borders? What were we? And, you know, it made me think about that that conundrum between community and self, that conundrum that you talk about with life versus principles. It's You think that it's an individual responsibility, but it's often not, is it? No, no. I think, um, you know, communities have to respond, I guess, to the pressures that are put, put on them. And yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's all, yeah, it's, I guess it's always one of those challenging questions of, you know, how, how does one participate in speaking out? How far does one go towards that? Um, I guess, you know, in this, this day and age with social media, it's very easy to sort of jump on a, on a viewpoint and express that without too much threat to your, to your safety and, and life. But yeah, um, they are they are really intriguing questions, and and that's that's a big part of what I wanted to explore in the book, particularly around you know the with the Paris occupation, um, you know the, those those degrees of acquiescence. I mm. think um, you know just it's interesting you mentioned the Holocaust, and and without wanting to diverge too much, that was something I I felt very keenly that I I I, I didn't want to speak to in the book because obviously it is a um, 
it's you know there's people who are still alive to this day that, that is their lived experiences or the experience of their you know their their parents and and, and grandparents so this I wanted to sort of step away from that a little and, and talk about citizens and the the sort of I mean it is well covered in a lot of um um sort of non-fiction but it felt like it was worth worth investigating you know is a shop is somebody who sells food is a is a works in a shop and is selling food to the germans are they collaborating with the germans because they they give them that you know they give them food or are they just trying to put food on the table of their families by by making money um so yeah it's it's it's, it's the moral grays is what interests me mm. okay so talk to me about how this came about the idea of it came about so I um like many people my my age uh, my 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 grandparents were were all involved in the war effort um and um one of my grandfathers was writing for um the Natal Mercury um South African newspaper as a journalist and and when he joined the war he he actually wrote back almost like there weren't uh, articles almost like reportage of the experience his experience in the war and they were sort of quite keenly observed, um, very humanistic uh, observations. And, and one of his letters, um, my my great aunt actually sent to me the original copy of what was then published in the Natal Mercury. And it gave this sort of sense of sense of place, but also um, just how, you know, normal people respond to the war. Um, and that got me thinking, you know, about things, um, about the, I guess, the occupation of Paris itself as a sort of really interesting setting um and um how to sort of then tell a story about just normal people uh in the war um and their responses and then in choosing paris as that location that immediately fed through to this idea about collaboration and and participation uh, my background also being in previously in crime but also got me thinking about the sort of kind of classic narratives and tropes around crime and i thought well if this if this person is you know working on the the two cases simultaneously. What if those two cases have actually his life is in peril, you know, through both of those because of the circumstances? So, yeah, it, it, it sort of arrived organically, but then was sort of actively constructed then from that sort of point. You probably know um, I've got a Lebanese Australian background, and um, a few years back now I, I visited Lebanon, and it was the time when the the civil war was just about coming to an end, but. What was astounding for me, and you will know this from your research, is how normal people wanted life to be. So they would organise to go out to dinner. My cousins and my aunts would organise to go out to dinner and I, I could hear things in the background, like I could hear bombs and I could hear. And, I, I mean, I was absolutely petrified the whole time that I was there. But what they were doing day to day was trying to normalise everything. Yeah. Yeah. And in a sense, trying to ignore it. And I wondered about that a lot when I came back because they are highly political, but how much control do we actually have? Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's, mm. I think for people, it's, it's certainly in the, in the research. And, and I mean, honestly, when, I, when I'm talking about my research, you know, if I, if I factored myself as somebody who knew everything about the, you know, the occupation of Paris at 100, I'm sort of sitting down around a 10, you know, I, I research enough to be able to write the book. But certainly in the research that I was doing, yeah, there was a, absolutely a, a desire to sort of continue with the normal way of life, even despite food shortages. And there were some fascinating things, you know, I mean, just in terms of the way that people adapted and modified. And even though that was all going around them, you know, gasoline wasn't available 
So horse-drawn carriages came back out and pedicabs and all those sorts of things that hadn't been used in, in years. Yeah, it was still very much that sort of desire to be Paris and participate. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one thing that I think is fascinating on that point, um, and, and it's a very interesting point you raise, is also the way the Germans reacted because they they were trying to, I mean, there was very much a sense of Paris being a centre of Europe. It was very much a goal to occupy Paris and then bring everybody into sort of a, you're now part of Germany, but also you've got all these soldiers sitting around in Montmartre painting you know, the the, the, the the houses they see and trying to participate in the sort of cultural life of Paris and they're trying to normalise their experience as well, which would have been completely bizarre for Parisians. I mean, you, you would have really felt the presence of these, you know, yeah, occupiers every day, but they're all there like any tourist or, you know, trying to be Parisians queuing up for, you know, mm. it's it's fascinating. Mm. Mm. I, and I thought about wartime deeply through the t- Trump area because, of course, it wasn't a war as we know it, but there was, it was an assault, you know, mm. and um, I often, you know, people say, oh, well, Americans are crazy or, but that's, that's just not true. Most Americans just want to live their life. Most mm. people just want to live that life. And you woke up every morning, you know, from one atrocity to the next. And now, and a lot of the Americans I knew were embarrassed about that or they were trying not to talk about it. They were trying not to have it as part of their everyday life. And now you wake up, it's kind of like we're out of social media wartime. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I, quietness around it, right? You yeah. know? It is almost like, yeah, I, 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 I mean, even we, we I wasn't in America, but it's almost like we were all trying to survive Trump, you know, in many yeah. ways. Yeah. Yes, it's, it's, I don't even, like every morning it was like, what new shocking thing has he done or outrageous thing as he said, you know, I was, I was obsessed, but also, you know, appalled but at the same time. Every morning I was checking the news feed just to see what was happening. Um, it was like an assault and yet you wake up now and it's like, oh, what other remarkable thing has happened yeah. in the United States yeah. today? The American president, I haven't heard anything for a week. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But it does, it does, it does make me think about your main character as well. And the responsibility of the individual and the decisions that we make during that time, doesn't it? Yes, yeah. I, I think, and then, and that, yeah, that was a big part of how I wanted to explore his, his survival, you know, and how he was trying to survive those circumstances. So whether that's through sort of directly avoiding, because I mean, it's sort of almost as a black and whiteness to the, the occupation. There were resistance movements within France and Paris actively fighting the Germans. So I guess anywhere along that sort of spectrum, if you're not actively putting your life on the line to fight occupiers, so larger occupying, for, well, not larger, but in terms of a resistance fighter, I guess there's more of German soldiers than there are of you and you are less well-equipped. I guess you could argue that, yeah. So he, so Duchenne, the main character, is, is, is really trying to find out a way to get by to assuage his own uh, demons. Uh, I don't think it's spoiling too much of the book to say that he, um, one of the inst- instigating events behind why he actually goes looking for lost children is because he is a teacher and his school is bombed actually by the, by the allies that these things did happen, you know, obviously. Mm-hmm. So, um, and he, he, he has harbors no ill will towards him because he's a pragmatist in many ways, but now he's sort of out there trying to find a way to make a living to barter and trade by finding missing children to assuage that sort of survivor's guilt in many ways that he's had from being the only person to survive that bombing. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a, um, I, th- I think it, it's then how he relates to everything else around the events as they conspire against him when, you know, the resistance come in and, you know, pressure him into finding a missing priest Um, and at the same time or around about the same time a German major threatens his life if he doesn't go looking for a 
missing German soldier. Mm. Uh, so those are, you know, how does he keep both sides uh, at, at bay without, you know, yeah, threatening himself or his, his daughter's life? Yeah. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Talk to me about how you came to writing because you immigrated. Was it? Were you born here or? No, no. I was. Uh, I was five years old. So yeah. I, I have. I have memories of South Africa for when I was a child, and we returned a few times. The family over the years. Um, and why did you immigrate? I was my parents' decision in many ways. I mean, uh, you. I mean, uh, other other. Other people um, I know, and you know, you had Sheridan Dovey recently on uh, a little while back, actually. Yeah, but, um, she's wonderful, isn't she? Yes, and I mean, certainly, I mean, my parents weren't that they were not keen for us to grow up under apartheid. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the things that's sort of in the conversation, and I'm in no way suggesting that that white South Africans had it had it bad. They they, they clearly did not, but it was a regime that was a very restrictive authoritarian regime for for people so media access to books and films and and there was censorship on a daily basis largely the you know the fear was around showing um you know a positive reinforcements of black and white interrelations you know and 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 um so things were banned um all the time so it was it was it was a regime um, and I, they, they weren't keen that uh, my sister and myself grow up uh, under that. They're not alone in that. A, a large number of South Africans who had the opportunity and means to immigrate did. Yeah, so that, that's that's why we came to Australia. It could have been any number of locations. Um, my, my father worked in advertising and um, as an advertising executive, he had a few other options on the table, but it ended up being Melbourne, which was great for me because I, I, lo- I love Melbourne. My first two books were, um, were very much sort of almost like a, a, a sort of a passionate, um, you know, homage. Love, homage to Melbourne and everything mm. it reflects, yeah. Yeah. Talk to me about growing up in Melbourne. Um, did you, because, you know, I, my parents immigrated from Lebanon and I was born here actually, but they came and went and my strongest memory is being in primary school in kindergarten and not having the language. Like I didn't mm. I didn't know how to speak English. It didn't seem to be a barrier, but anyway. But I often thought that white kids that immigrated, like yourself, like English people, like Irish people, whatever, that they didn't have the same struggles that I did. But when I think about it as now, as an adult, cultural differences are still as important and huge. And did you feel that this wasn't home in those early days, or you didn't? Yeah, no, I was. I was very conscious of it. Um, yeah. So it is an interesting point that you raise. I mean, obviously, there, there are on the spectrum of people's immigration experience. I, I don't think 
mm. you know, largely wh- white I- immigrants, you know, emigres have nearly as much challenge, right? We're in a very privileged position, certainly at, at a glance. You don't look, dif- you know, particularly in a, mm. in a country in Australia that was still, you know, not that many years prior to my, I was 81, white Australia policy was, mm. was still fairly recent in people's memory. So, no, so th- there wasn't any of uh, sort of the language barrier or any sort of immediate cultural difference. But, yeah, th- absolutely, um, you know, I was very conscious of the fact that I didn't sound the same as other children um, in, and, and they were very aware of that. I guess ironically they'd say, are you are you a Kiwi? And I should have just said yes. I should have said yes, I'm from New Zealand. Yeah. So, it, yeah, you know, th- there were challenges that were fairly, I would say, but they were they were fairly minor. Um, I think what it did give me is a sense of inside or outsider, you know. So yeah. certainly because it was, I wasn't immediately sort of solidly identifying as an Australian in those early early days uh, and still felt very much like a South African and sort of felt, but I was in, inside the sort of, you know, communities of, of, of Australians and, and and observing, but also not feeling a part of it at the same time. Was there anything about South Africa? Where did you grow up in South Africa? And was there something that you missed, like the smell, the feel? I mean, I remember missing my grandmother, you know. Yeah, that- certainly. Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head. It was very much similar. It was, it was missing my my my, my grandmother um, and, and my relatives. It's very close with my, um, when I was younger, with my cousins, less so these days because they're still over there. But um yeah, there's definitely those associations were very strong. I can certainly remember where we lived in Johannesburg and the sort of, sort of, in some ways, it's an interesting, it's it's where we were living, which is an area called Parktown. It was quite lush. It's not dissimilar to Sydney in many ways in terms of some of the sort of, you know, prevalence of all the um, plant life and the sort of, sort of humidity and the sort of types of flowers you get there. So I have strong memories of that. Um, absolutely. But again, I was quite small. Mm. I remember having to wear seatbelts. That was surprising because in South Africa, as a child, you didn't have to wear a seatbelt <laughs> in the back seat. You're sliding around on the every time you took a corner. So, yeah. It was um, food for me. I, you know, food was a big factor, you know, leaving that that cuisine and walking and seeing people at school with Devon sandwiches. And I was just like, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah, we still ate a lot of the same sorts of you know yeah. foods, South African foods for many years. Um, yeah. But again, uh, my heritage, my ancestry is 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 not even the sort of Dutch. It's on the on the sort of Scottish, Irish, English side, you know. Um, and uh, Australia and South Africa are very similar in many ways. I think yeah. you know they're, they're mad about sport. You know, everybody goes out, and no matter what the weather, there's no there's no idea of not going and doing something if it's raining. Um, Barbecues and brides, you know, um, a big part of you know that that sort of thing. Um, yeah, and all those are very post-colonial cultures that have highly problematic relationships with their indigenous populations. You know, they, they're surprisingly alike. Mm. Okay, so tell me how how did the young writer come to be then? Uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. I think I was very privileged in that, you know, I grew up with a family of parents who are both readers and passionate about books, and I think that's always you know critical um the, the joy of reading and it's something that my wife and I have dedicated ourselves towards and inspiring in our own daughters and then I just I had a very sort of key few inspirational um teachers along the way I, I very clearly remember being in um would have been grade three um at primary school and we, had, we would we were always tasked with writing these sort of short little stories and we'd pin them up around the room um and you'd cut them out on something colored pieces of paper that were you know something from the story and you know at the end of that year I sort of looked around and I had 40 percent of those 
little stories pinned up around the room were all mine. And and I realized that I wow. really enjoyed the sort of storytelling thing. Yeah. And it grew from there. You know, I had some other sort of great educational, sort of inspirational teachers along the way. Um, my father is a writer. His father was a writer before him. Writing, it was always something that was going on in the house. You know, and my mother was a teacher and as I said, passionate about books and and, and writing. Um you know, she's a great lover of uh, Shakespeare, and and so yeah, I just sort of inherited it, really. I mean, you know, without you wanting to diminish no it. No, I had no choice. So I, w- I would describe myself as a third generation writer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I noticed that in your biography. Okay, so when did you get your first book published? Like, tell me about that process because that's not easy. Whether you, it's no. just, you know, I mean, regardless of whether it's passed on through your genes to get yeah. it published is yeah. a different matter, right? <laughs> yes, and and these are always interesting questions. Like, I, I try to walk a middle line because I know that there's, you know, there's enthusiasm and wanting to encourage people and and say, you know, if you don't sit down and write a book, you'll never get one published. So, yeah. you know. I always feel like it's important to be enthusiastic, but then there's the also commercial realities of, of it. It's, a, it's an industry and there are commercial ideas. So my first attempts at writing, I, I, I was trying to merge genres and I was sending them off to publishers um, and getting, you know, rejection letters as you do. Um, and I sort of began to realise I needed to sort of think more strategically around how to write something that would be published. So um sent a book off to Penguin uh, and um, actually got a meeting with them, um, with the publisher at the time, my, um, who actually ended up being my first uh, publisher, um, Belinda Byrne. And she was very enthusiastic about the book but wanted some changes uh, made to it. So I went away and rewrote that, redrafted it, and, and unfortunately it didn't get up. But what it did do is it gave me a direct line into Penguin. Yeah. And it's also um, practice, isn't it? Yes, it is. I mean, that was so the, the first book that I had published, Blood Witness, was book number five that I'd written mm. mm-hmm. and it's you know it's that 10,000 hours thing I mean you just have to sort of write and write and, and while there are some very um, talented individuals who do get their very first book that they ever wrote published for the vast majority of writers it's it's, it's just putting the hours in yeah and, and and that was how that sort of story worked and I was you know fortunate enough to be able to sort of leverage that interest from Penguin into getting the interest of my agent and you know and then um it sort of went from there and she negotiated on my behalf um for those first two books, yeah. Mm. And you also teach writing. I well, in the sense that I have been out and and given run writers workshops, yeah. And and absolutely, my emphasis is more on like commercial realities of what it is, um, how one would prepare their cover letter and and approach writers and know about how commissioning works in a in a. So every time I sort of sit down with and, and have experience of being in a talking to publishers sort of my brain's ticking away about how the, their business works um, and, and how things come together. I mean, professionally, I'm a, a digital communications and marketing, you know, I run websites um, is what I do. And I'm, so I'm always thinking about those worlds. Those are interesting to me, you know, to understand how they how they function. Um, so I try to give sort of practical advice that's, you know, grounding people for the reality of what it is to go out there and try to get published. So you've got a job outside of writing. I do, yes, yeah. a, a, a day that- job. Yeah, that's a that's a hard switch. So when do you write? That's one of the great attractions of of working in, at universities um, uh, is that you get pretty good, um, you know, sort of leave. Um, you can accrue annual leave, uh, um, you know, of of a, of a good size, and also, um, you know, the the long service leave pops up a little bit earlier than some other other industries. Um, so yeah, so I've, I've I've in the past I've taken long service leave to go and write. I've um, I, I block out, you know, sort of 
annual leave chunks of, of weeks at a time to sort of sit down and do that sort of, you know, forming this, the shape of this, of, of what this piece will be before I then go and, you know, fine tune and edit on the re-edits. Yeah, so it's just not, finding. You don't kind of come home from work and sit at your computer and try and do four. Oh, or no, that's what no, no, no. I mean, I can do that with certainly with editing and rewriting. That's yeah. you know because you can dip in, you know. Whereas yeah. no, I need to sit down like I'd like a day job. I, if I sit down to write, I sit down and write for seven hours, you know, for a week, seven hours a day, five days a week, um, and 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 properly, you know, be, get in the space. Because you know it's it's you you have to push through um, the initial reluctance and get the words flowing. You know, yeah. But I'm fortunate in that I tend to write fairly quickly, and and my approach is to actually heavily plot before I sit put pen to paper, so I know where I'm going. I'm never there pondering what's the next step. You know. And do, do you write in sequence? Like, do you write from? For the most part, yeah, yeah, because I, I find it a lot easier. I mean, when I go back and edit, I might sort of we might rearrange, and certainly with the benefits of with the with the Paris collaborator had such a fantastic editorial um, team and publisher that we. We really sort of went in and we discussed at length and I won't say argue, but um, debated at many, many ideas about the book and it greatly improved it because of it, because I was able to then review and we, we did shuffle some of the sort of elements of the timeline around a little bit um, and I really benefited from that experience. So it was fantastic. And are you working on something else? Uh I wear another hat, so yes. Um, I also write screenplays. Um, so, um, or as I like to call it, the document. So you don't product. sleep much. <laughs> <laughs> You've got a family. Yeah, it's it's working those sort of the times in between. Yeah, no, and I've got a very supportive um, family, and and my wife Bernie is very supportive of finding. You know, if I'm going to say I'm going to go away and write for a few hours, you know, we'll coordinate and we'll structure our weekend so that we balance it out and we each, you know, take the the kids for a bit and then swap over. Yeah, so very busy. But um, yeah, so I'm actually working uh, with my writing partner on a on a new um, screenplay for a TV series, which is a very different mode of writing, but I find it also very stimulating. Um, I enjoy them both. But it's a that's a tough nut to crack as as an industry. Um, there've been some very close things that have almost come up over the years, but um, yeah, particularly yeah, now, hard. it's a lot of collaboration, isn't it? I mean, I, I writing a novel is collaborative as well, but in the first instance, it's not. You can kind of apply yourself and make it happen, you know, and then move on to that second stage of getting it out there. But with um, writing for TV or filmmaking, oh, it seems to me to be very different. It is. I think you have to have a different expectation. I mean, writing is is one of the great things about writing prose and and, and I guess poetry as well and nonfiction, I guess, in the publishing is that for the most part, you are the auteur. Like, yes, you have to work with an editor and, and, and they are fantastic. I mean, I've never had a bad experience. These are professionals who really commit themselves to improving the work and are passionate about what they do. But there's a understanding almost that, you know, they'll observe the writer's call on what they're trying to achieve, you know, mm. I mean, they'll, they'll debate and, and I'll often, you know, I like to collaborate with them. So I'll concede the point and say, you know, actually it's much improved the way that you've suggested. But yeah, with screenwriting, uh, you are the first step in a process where the story, the narrative is going to change. You know, you're, this, you write the screenplay, then the director is going to have an interpretation, actors will have an interpretation, then the editor will edit it differently, the stu- you know, studios and 
producers will get involved, you know, things will it'll and be the much, actor will change and yeah, you know, exactly. Change your lines. You yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sweat over and then they improvise. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, we I think we've run out of time. Alex Hammond, thank you so much for your time. I've I've just found this um a really interesting conversation. It's it's a good book. It's called The Paris Collaborator, and congratulations on it. Oh, thank you so much, Cheryl, and thank you for having me on board. Um I enjoyed it very much and I'm a big fan of the podcast. So it's thank great you. to be here. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audio books are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.